Welcome to the Momentum Matters podcast, where we have courageous conversations with women leaders. You'll hear about their accomplishments, their experiences, challenges, and best advice. If you're inspired by women who have overcome barriers and gone on to do extraordinary things, you're in the right place. My name is Karen Taradis, and I'm the CEO of Social U, a digital media marketing firm offering social media management, training, and consulting. Today on Momentum Matters, we're excited to discuss resilience and physical health with Dr. Desiree Morgan, the Vice Chair of Education for the UAB Department of Radiology. Now here's our host, April Benitolo, CEO of Momentum Leaders. Dr. Desiree Morgan, welcome to Momentum. We are super excited that you were able to take time out of what is an extremely busy schedule today to, to, to spend a little bit of time to inspire our audience and uh, I believe you told me that you are actually at a conference in Chicago right now. I'm in Chicago. I'm at McCormick <laughs> Place right now. It's like the COVID miracle. It um, absolutely <laughs> is a COVID miracle. How okay. it can be so, so many you, places at once. You've been Zooming a, a Chicago conference. Exactly. With tens of thousands of my best friends. And just a little break to run down to Momentum to chat. So awesome. thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So as you know, this January, we're focusing on physical health. Um, some of our topics do revolve around you know, mental health, emotional health, um, leadership topics. But January, we decided after all of the excesses of the holidays and with the um, resolutions that people tend to make in January, that we would focus on physical health. So during our last episode, we had your dear friend and colleague, Dr. Sherry Cannon, uh, speak Great with one. us mm-hmm. about self-care and the importance of self-care and how that can be so overwhelmingly difficult for working moms, especially. Um, But with you, we wanted to focus on something that I know is, is, is very core to you. And that is something also that all women leaders, I believe it's a trait that they all share, you know, bar none. And that is resilience. And boy, has it been important this past year. And it has been important this past year. So, but before we get to resilience and how that plays a role in in how you lead and how you have been able to achieve what you've been able to achieve, I did want um, see if you, I wanted to see if you could share with our audience a little bit about how you decided to become a doctor because it's such an incredibly interesting story. Well, thanks, thanks for asking. I think this was part of my letter to Barbara that we wrote on our first assignment with Momentum. So on March 3rd, 1969, I was in kindergarten in Okinawa, Japan, and I was being walked down to my kindergarten bus stop with my mom and my three-year-old brother, and a car with nobody inside of it rolled backwards and hit us as we were walking um, from a sort of divided forked road, landed on my mother. She threw me out of the way, and I woke up um, as a five-year-old with my head hanging over a ditch telling someone I didn't know my father's social security number because that's everything in the army. And so that was, again, girls' day in Japan. I went to the hospital. I had a broken leg and lacerations. My little brother was in the bed next to me when I woke up. He was in like a full body cast, the kind of plaster from here to there. And my mom was in intensive care unit for months. Well, so my one little broken leg was something that turned into a contracture, and it wound up that I spent about 18 months in and out of casts as you're growing and with physical therapy. And um, in fact, my family was living not on a base in Okinawa. There were, I don't know, tons of bases, two Marine bases, Air Force, Army, etc. We were not living on base, but when I went home, 
they had moved us into quarters next to this big military hospital that was getting the war wounded from Vietnam. So that's dating myself. But um, I spent so much time in the hospital, and it was really a positive experience for me, I think, my little five-year-old self, um, that I really do think that that had a huge impact on me. And so when I grew up in middle school, and then in high school and was pretty good in science and math, um, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so my whole, I think my beta club scholarship application in high school was to be a radiologist, which is what I became. And how did you come to radiology? Well, I loved everything. So in medicine, you'll, um, you spend the first two years learning about the body and all the basics, anatomy, physiology, pathology. And then you go to your clinical rotations where you learn pediatrics, surgery, urology, um, name it. Radiology is one of those things. And it involved everything. So radiology really involves from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. And so it interests me because it was lots of different things about the body. It's the diagnostic piece that I really love, figuring out what's wrong. And so you're that part of the healthcare team that is um, assessing the patient and then coming up with what's wrong so that a plan can be made for how to make it better. So that was always really exciting for me. And um, I have loved my job. I, I tell everybody, for women, this is a fantastic field, um, intellectually stimulating, um, never dull moment, always unfortunately for patients, new diseases to learn about. And in radiology, technology advances that are always exciting. So you had shared with me that one of your closest advisors as a child and going into adolescence um, who had a profound effect on you was kind of woven into that decision to become a radiologist. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, I was the first woman in my family to graduate from college. My mom went to graduate from high school, went to a few years of college, but didn't graduate. And I didn't know any doctors. Um, growing up in the Army, you had to swear that you were sick before you ever went to an appointment, yeah. uh, emergency appointment. So I didn't really have role models. Um, but I, when I went to high school, I was a cheerleader. And my cheerleading sponsor was my, my also my advanced math teacher. Her sister, ironically enough, was a radiologist. And she was an abdominal imager, a GI radiologist, who worked part-time and became a dean at the Medical College of Georgia. And so she was the only female doctor I knew. I mean, I had seen some you know, pediatricians along the way but no one that ever was um, some person I looked up to to aspire to. And so I just knew of her when I wrote that Beta Club scholarship application because I had learned from her sister about what her life was like. And then um, she became a friend of mine. We saw each other at meetings. When I went back for my 30th medical school reunion, she was celebrating her 50th. Oh, wow. Her name is Sandra Friedman, and she was an inspiration to me from afar. So, yeah, she was the and sister. And then up close. Yeah, and then up close. So uh -huh. it's, it was a very small world. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the first day of medical school, they said, well, what do you want to be? I mean, it's one of the exercises they do, and they watch how people change as they learn about all the different things that you can be in medic medical school. And I wrote down radiologist just because I knew Sandra Friedman. And then, like I said, I loved everything, so that's what I became. Now, when you stay in academics like I do, you have to narrow it down. You can't possibly be good at learning and keeping up with everything. So I'm an abdominal imager now. Abdominal imagery. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So... Tell us a little bit more about that path to becoming a doctor. We all know it's not its not easy, the studies, the residency, the decisions that you have to make, um, you know, just a sheer amount of time that you have to put in while everybody else is getting on with their young professional lives. So, so how did that experience contribute to your resilience? So I think um, there's a big part of altruism that is built into every person that makes it through the decision and then the pathway to become a physician. Um, and when you're in college, 
Um, everyone else is having fun. I had a lot of fun. I think I had way too much fun in college. But you learn as you get progressively through the harder and harder courses, more people are what they call weeded out. It's not for everybody to go into medicine. My parents were um, went through separation and divorce when I was 15. And we actually, I went from, my dad was in the Army, he was an officer, went from being sort of upper middle class to pretty much poor and went to school and Pell scholarships and stuff. And so when I was in at the University of Georgia to save my family money because we didn't have anything to really pay for college, um, I took the MCAT a year early, took all the classes that you're supposed to take. I doubled up on them to try to save money by only graduating in three years instead of four. And when I did well enough in the uh, MCAT, I decided to go for it. And so I wound up graduating in three and starting school. So for me, some of it was practicality, money issue. Um, I did well in the classes. I loved the thought of helping people and learning about the human body. So I never looked back. Now, I do think that there's something to be said for maturity. So I was very immature when I went to medical school. Some people become accountants and then they go to medical school or have totally different paths of nursing first or being a PA. Um, for me, going straight through, I think was right. They mm -hmm. fit me. So I, I just never had a doubt. I just went for it. Never looked back. Amazing. Glad I did. Yes, yes. And then your residency? So that was sort of an inter interesting story. I um, was set up on a semi-blind date for a post-pathology formal with my now husband of 35 years. A he was post-pathology post formal? Yeah, I know. This so is romantic. So school. romantic. Watch out, ladies, what might happen. So seriously, he was in the class ahead of me. And at the Medical College of Georgia, each year they had one sort of formal party. And the first year was after anatomy was over, and the second year was after pathology. And one of my good friends was set up with one of his friends, and she actually wanted to go with someone else in the class. So I was like, well, just invite one of his friends to ask me, and I'll go with you so you don't have to talk to him. You can talk to me. And that person turned out to be my husband and um, matched in ophthalmology here at UAB. So normally when you apply for residencies, you apply a bunch of different places, and you go and visit them, and you see what's a good match for your training. But I didn't want to live in a different city, so I basically only applied to UAB, and I was in a good enough standing in the class. It all worked out well for me, and I got to move where my husband was going to be. And so um, I didn't take the normal path either towards training. I just kind of zeroed in and have been at UAB since. Actually, I've been in Birmingham since. There was a period in my um, professional life where I left um, and went into private practice because I needed more job flexibility in order to take care of my mom who was having to deal with her first cancer that she had. Okay. And when did your children come into the mix for you? I swore that I would never be pregnant and be taking call nine months pregnant in the hospital. And sure enough, second month of, re second month of residency, I became pregnant with my first child. Now, my mother, who I just mentioned, um, since my folks were divorced, she actually moved here when I uh, knew I was going to be having a baby in the middle of residency, which is a little bit difficult. Uh, she moved here to take care of her. And I have, you know, comes at a price, a little bit of family mm -hmm. dynamics. Um, but I would not have been able to do it had that not happened because I was never really good at delegating childcare um, too much. And with my mother here, that made it easier. So first baby as a second year resident, second baby in between my written and oral boards, which are the big certifying tests for a radiologist. So um, we didn't really plan it that way. Happily enough, happened. I don't think there's ever a perfect time to have a baby. So for me, it wound up being perfect. And then after our, I finished training, became a faculty member at UAB, then my third one came along, Anna Grace. So my children are now 30, 
uh, 28 and 21. Fabulous. Yeah, I think um, I often joke around when women start the Momentum program and say, you know, there are two things that you can totally relate to. There is, you, you think you don't have time to do Momentum, but it's just like having a baby. Like there is no perfect time to do it, right? But, but you're so glad you did it. But you're so but, glad you did yes, it. Yes, so glad. And then exactly. love expands with more babies, so more momentum. Right. More love, <laughs> right. more success. Yeah. But no, so I would, getting back to resiliency, you know, what would I have done had my mother not been able to move her? I think that's really hard. To me, childcare mm. is the greatest challenge. Like, look what's happening right now in COVID. Yeah. People are, the women dropping out of the workforce is just, you know, it's an unequal burden. That's on right. women still to this day. So I was fortunate um, in that I was able to rely on my mother. And what was the relationship like with your husband in terms of sharing some of that? So burden? he's a really good partner. Um, our first child was born when I was in residency. He graduated ahead of me. He was working in Gadsden. So, I mean, we, we were all over the place. Um, you know, as you try to work two careers in one city, where everybody's happy and content and fulfilled with what they're doing, it's a challenge. And then as you go through your career, things change that make adjustments necessary. Um, that's where resiliency comes in. And also being able to roll with it is um, a good quality for all of us. So he has always been um, a great partner. I mean, literally now, um, and this is a funny story, but when my oldest went off to college, I, I cooked. So that, I just love to cook. I'm, I loved to cook, I should say past tense. But when the first one went to college, I suddenly became unable to carry out my cooking of this. I, my recipes were all like, well, this is for five people. And even though my daughter was 5'7 and weighed 105 pounds, she's a runner. Um, all of a sudden, he started cooking. And now he cooks much more than I do. So really? he's always been one to step in. Um, we share cleaning. Actually, I love to clean my house. I know it's not a great choice when you're super busy. And so it's definitely something that... I would advise people to get help to do, but for me to take a break mentally from what I do at work every day, just to, not just to clean, but to watch yourself achieve, you know, what happens when you clean is, um, well, it's part of my resiliency plan. Good. Good. So, and and, and exercise. Yeah. Oh, exercise too. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you do on that front. What's well, my family will tell you that I jog because they are all runners and I move very slowly, <laughs> slightly faster than a walk as I uh, go across the ground. Uh, so we, we were a family of runners, and it's really important to me to get out, get out early. Um, actually, because if I wait till after work, it's never going to happen. I'm too tired. Um, and now I walk a couple days a week, and I try to run at least three. So not far, not more than four to seven miles um, max That's at this run. stage in my career. Yeah, it's a good run. I feel it. I feel it now more than I used to. Right. Um, and I love to run outside. I'm not a good treadmill runner. I like to run mm -hmm. and look at houses and chat and just be outdoors. Nice. So you mentioned that your daughter is a runner. And um, I know that a couple of years ago, she had a really tragic accident and a very long recovery. So I was wondering if you don't mind um, sharing what happened that day, what you know, what they were going to do. and um, and And also... What was your, where did you draw your strength from in the many, many weeks and months, really years, that it has taken to, to help her through that recovery? 
So I'll start with some of the back end. I am so appreciative that I went through momentum and learned strategies for handling stress and building resiliency two years before this accident happened. So I'll just throw that down right now. And to say Madeline Morgan is a runner is an understatement. I mean, this child lived to run. She was a um, champion runner here in town and then went to run at Duke. And um, literally, we would take vacations when my kids were young, planning, well, you can't go to St. John because it's too hilly for workouts to run 13 miles, so we would have to go to Grand Cayman or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, always a consideration of renting an exercise bike for a cabin in the Grand Tetons because we didn't want anyone to get eaten by a bear when they had to go out and do long runs. So <laughs> we are a runner family. So she um, followed, not me, into medicine. My husband and I are both physicians, but she took her own path and decided after studying evolutionary anthropology and primates that she wanted to focus on helping humans as well. So she was a pediatric intern here at UAB. And um, one of the development activities they have for the interns is they take them on a retreat, learn uh, you know, how they interact, some of the exercises like we do with momentum. And at the end of the retreat, they were all on a bus. The bus lost its brakes. Going down a hill, it got into a wreck and hit a rock, I think, then a tree. And basically everyone in the bus just went flying. And Madeline was not on the exact bottom, but on the bottom. But she um, was pretty severely injured. So the way I learned is the way I pray that no one, I mean, I learned to love helicopters now because that means someone is coming in and has a chance. But what you don't want to have is the phone call, the screaming phone call from your husband saying, go to the emergency room, your child is on the way to UAB in a helicopter. Um, again, now I look at that reversed. It's life-giving. It's hopeful to have that yeah. message. But at the time, I wasn't really having that. So I'm not super drama queen at work, but I was in my office. I was getting ready to go to clinical service. And I just stepped out of my office, and I said, someone else has to go to ultrasound. I'm going to the emergency room. And I went running from my office toward the North Pavilion. You know, UAB is a pretty big place, so I'm like running through the crosswalks politely, but kind of making my way down there. And I realized when I get to the North Pavilion, I don't know the front way into the ER. Like, I don't know how to go in as a patient. Yeah. I just know how to be a radiologist at UAB. So I find my way in. And I get there. It was kind of ironic because we were notified about this accident because with the interns, with that whole class of 27 young physicians, were their program directors. These are the people that lead the residency. The program directors that happened to be in, ahead of the bus in cars heard the accident and went running over, and they were both pediatric intensivists, so they were able to triage, and they knew, okay, Madeline Morgan's not breathing. You know, she's going to need to go in a helicopter. So they called the program office, the people that administer the education training program. And so that's who we got called from, not from an ambulance, not from UAB, but from the people at the training office. So I showed up at the ER before they knew she was coming. Wow. Okay. So I said, my daughter was in this wreck. It's coming in. It's that big wreck with all the pediatrics people. And the people behind the desk looked at me and said, we don't have anybody coming in. And I thought I was going to faint. So, and this is the place where I work. And so, you know, I, things did come around. They did get the call. I knew she was coming. And then there were so many people because several of the people on the bus first went to Gadsden. A lot of them came here. It was like a mass casualty event. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my child was the star. So what it meant for her was she had several, mostly orthopedic injuries. Thank goodness, no real internal injuries, but her left foot was almost uh, severed. And for a runner that lives for that, um, we were looking, and her pelvis was broken. So um, 
we knew she would recover from that. She had been in a wheelchair for, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity, but it was probably 12 weeks or so. But we didn't know if she'd be able to run or feel her foot or lift her foot. And so to go from a physician to, you know, a patient's mom and to ask all those questions at once was shocking. So how did we do it? Well, we did it because there was no option other than to do it. But again, skills of breathing, of trying to get in a quiet place, to think of all the options, to try to figure out the right questions, to try to be supportive. Um, You know, from that episode of zipping out of my office, I didn't actually go back to work. I went on FMLA and was able to take care of her because she could do nothing for herself. Mm -hmm. She couldn't sit up. She couldn't well, for all of you who might know her, she couldn't go to the bathroom without her help, you know, couldn't bathe, couldn't do anything for herself at the age of 27. Um, and so my support system at work, Sherry Cannon, the leader of um, UIB, the chair of radiology there, and all of my colleagues pitched in and I was able to be, you know, her nurse and caregiver. She wasn't a very good patient. I'm not a really good nursing type of caregiver, but we managed to uh, make our way out and she's fully recovered. When you do strength training as a runner, it's physical therapy when you're healthy. So she was really excellent mm-hmm. and a good patient for physical therapy because that's how she spent all of her recovery as a you know person who raced all year long in college. So that I think really helped her right. recover. So um, you know, in looking back, I wish it hadn't happened. Um, there were things that were forever changed because of it, but it we got time to be together. Um, we learned from it. I practiced things I learned at Momentum. And, um, you know, just like my mother recovered from the car with nobody inside of it rolling backwards, I, you know, you just make do. It's a, the human body is amazing. And medicine yes. is That's macro amazing. resiliency, right? So that's something that a big thing happens. You never want to get that call. You learn to deal with it. But it's really what you do every day that sets the stage for being able to handle when the big things happen, I think. Right. Right. Very good point. You, um, I know one of the the classes that we had at Momentum that really left a mark on you and really uh, informed, I would say, your um, path of resilience was Dr. Sharon Melnick's class on um, success under stress Mm -hmm. and resilience in times of change. And I think, you know, as we were, uh, talking before we started today, there has been no bigger test, perhaps, of our resilience, especially in, in uh, for you all in healthcare, than the COVID pandemic. That's right. So um, I'll touch upon COVID in just a second, but I do want to thank Sharon Melnick for changing my life, because literally um, her talk that she gave, I remember she was sick. She came right. down and um, Showed up anyhow. I'm so glad I didn't miss that. I didn't miss any of momentum. Would never have missed momentum. <laughs> Definitely have my phone put away. But I really internalized what she said because I knew right away. And she promised when she gave some of the tips um, that it could really affect your uh, productivity at work and reduce your stress, which was what I needed the year I did momentum especially. I was super busy with all kinds of different jobs other than being a radiologist while being a radiologist. And that, by that, I mean in academics, you you know, have other responsibilities. So I really took to heart what she said and I could apply them next day. And so I have given lectures, I have incorporated, I have given her all credit possible because I love the woman and she really, like I said, changed my life. But I've given talks based on what I learned, like the three top things that I took away from that to um, 
wide ranges of people, of groups of people. So from predominantly men audiences at a you know highly technical radiology conference to uh, learners in healthcare um, and book club members, everything in between. Okay. And what were those top three things? So the first thing is the 50-50 rule. So look at what is happening to you in real time at work and you uh, make a circle out of it. You draw a line in the middle, 50% above is what you can control, 50% is what you cannot control in that moment. And so to reduce your stress, what you do is you become, you be impeccable for your 50%. So what that does for you is it lets you analyze, decide, can't control that, so I'm going to you know, be the best person I could be in the situation and make a good decision. doesn't mean you can never address that. It just means in the moment, if you try to dwell on that, it will cause you stress and you won't be successful. You can address it later with thoughtfulness and trying to, you know, make big change. The second thing was breathing, and that's from Barbara, um, reinforced by Sharon. And it really can affect the physiology of stress. If you learn to have a centering breath, it really changes the dynamics and makes it really fun to be at meetings where people aren't in control of their emotional triggers and you can watch this happen and then you can take them aside later and kind of share this with them so that things don't devolve for them personally. So breathing was another big one. Um, and then the next thing I learned from my co-mentors in Momentum, and that was giving grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means it's not religion, but it's giving someone space to be who they are in the discussion. So it's having empathy for people. If someone who is uncharacteristically curt or short, you understand that something may be not going well in their life, and so you give them grace to kind of recover from that. Or to have people heard that aren't extroverts, you know, to have everyone take a turn saying something. So you get the diverse opinions of a, a team that's helping you figure out a project. So that's what giving grace to me means. Yes. Giving people space. And also lets you breathe, right? If you step back to your 50-50 rule while you're breathing, you give grace, then you can make, you know, recognize your emotional triggers if they're happening to you and then make good decisions um, in respect to what is the objective of why you're meeting. What, what do you need to do? Yeah. So, and again, these are things I literally use every day at work for productivity, at home for sanity. Yes. And for resiliency. Yes. And in time of COVID, I guess is where we were going with this. I think, you know, micro resiliency is something I learned at the Momentum meeting. I think it was Bonnie St. John in 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, she had a book at that time. And she obviously is a very proficient at macro resiliency, too, given her story. But it's the things that you do every day, the attitude you choose to have. Um, you know, with intent, you know, what you're doing that really can affect your ability to recover, to adapt, and to roll with it. And again, if there's ever been a year where we need to do that, it's now in the time of COVID. And how are you seeing that you are up close and personal at UAB? Um, You are more on the academic side, and as you mentioned, in radiology, you were kind of one room removed from... um, the patient a lot of times, but what what are you seeing and what are your colleagues seeing out of this pandemic that you would like to share with people? Well, first, I'd like to share my thanks and gratitude to everybody who's been working with patients and keeping up with their job and delivering gro- groceries or mail or everyone that has been active in the time of COVID um, really has my admiration and my thanks. As a radiologist, I do do things with patients hands-on patients sometimes, but a lot of times we are in a different room, in a reading room, reading CAT scans, for example. Um, But I see nurses every day, and 
people who clean the hospital that are working with patients. And it's just, it's awe-inspiring because they, there is no choice. You still keep up with your job. I have not been at home. I've been working the whole time. And for me, one of the things that has affected me most, I guess, in my own personal experience with COVID, we have not had it. No one in my family's had it, but I'm an abdominal imager. But at the top of all my abdominal CT scans, I see the lung bases. And when I see a patient who is suffering from COVID and is hospitalized and is on ECMO and is very sick, you know, as a radiologist, you see the sickest of the sick people. I know of people that have COVID and didn't have a bad time with it, but what I get to see is the really uh, severe disease. And I think if people could all see that, it would it would be eye-opening um, for all of us. So, you know, I um, pray that those people get better. I know that there's a team of people we have as a medical community gotten better at saving lives of patients who get severe forms of covid there's still a lot we don't know about the lingering effects of COVID. Um, I'm really looking forward to the vaccine is all I can say. Yes, I think everybody is looking forward to the vaccine. Um, probably first and foremost, your frontline healthcare workers. But we have learned in education. I will, let me just share what we've learned. There are lessons from COVID that have been really effective at making things better. And so one of the things that has happened in education is we pivoted from in-person meetings like you know, I'm clearly not in Chicago, but to be able to educate and amplify the efforts of giving a lecture, if that is on Zoom or another product where it's video conferencing, you can send that to people um, in Africa, in right. Bhutan, in the reaches of South America. And at this meeting where I'm participating um, at the RSNA, there was just a lecture on global health and how that has been positively impacted, despite the negative part of right. COVID by helping with education of physicians all across the world. So we will take those lessons we learned that it will make things better long past the end of this pandemic and keep those parts. And hopefully the bad parts of COVID will be able to suppress. Completely agree. It, it was actually the driver for this podcast right. <laughs> and for the videos and for starting the YouTube channel was when we see statistics like one in four women are downsizing or leaving their career altogether because of COVID and the, the undue burden that, that yeah. they bear in caring for parents and caring for children. Um, this is a way to reach them. Yeah. It's alarming. Yeah. It could undo, you know, the 40 years of progress that has been so slow to go. And so we felt like it was really important to um, have some free and open content and these kinds of conversations to reach more professional women and the men who support them. Absolutely. Hey, you know, these are the things that are required for us to get through this moment. As a community. As a community. All together. Right. And not only to get through it, but for, you know, with, with an intention and resilience, if we can get through this and even get ahead. Right. Thrive. Thrive. That right. we learn from the things that we can learn from COVID. We take the good. We keep get rid of the bad. And Yeah, there's so many ways. Then a lot of the organizations I work for in national radiology, um, we did just that. I was at a meeting in Hawaii at the end of February, beginning of March in 2020. And it was the last medical meeting, I think, literally before everything was shut down. And what we did with our content is we made it immediately available on the web worldwide. It doesn't matter who got it. Yes. We just we just put it out there 
for trainees, for practicing physicians, radiologists all across the world. And you have seen example and exa- one after the other of people doing that to try to help. Um, you know, because if you feel, what can I do? A lot of us feel helpless in not being able to stop the spread of this disease. There are things you can do, um, and you've all seen the news. But I think we've all looked for concrete ways where we could make some kind of impact. And that was one thing that was super easy in, in national radiology or organizations is to just put out the content for yeah. everyone. Yeah. So kudos to Momentum for doing the same thing. Well, um, we're doing what we can. Yeah. And thank you for being a part of it. Um, I, My pleasure. Yeah, before we wrap up today, I wanted to ask you, um, who have been some of the, the great mentors in your life? And, and also, I know you mentor a lot of people also. Um, so if you could maybe share with us what you have gained from the experience of being a mentor. So I had an interesting self-reflection on this because at this same meeting that happens every year, um, I gave a big unknown film panel. All radiologists love this thing where we look at a case and everyone has to try to figure out what it is. And this one was like on the stage at RSNA with thousands of people in the audience put out all across the world. At the beginning of that, I talked about how important mentors are to the practice of radiology, and I wound up with a patchwork quilt of my mentors. It started off with um, Susan Mulligan, who is a retired radiologist, and she's presently up in Manhattan. Her husband is the chair of infectious disease at NYU, so having a really important um, time up there. Bob Kohler was the program director, the person in charge of the residency when I came to UAB, and he is my great mentor in GI radiology. Um, introduced me to the Society of Abdominal Radiology, of which I'm now president. So, I mean, these things come forward. So Bob Stanley, Bob Frazier, Phil Kenny, a lot of male mentors in radiology. Uh, and then I got to Selwyn Vickers. He and I were young attendings together. Clearly, he has far surpassed my achievements. He's a great guy to work with, and we're, yes. we're best friends when it comes to the pancreas, for all of you pancreatic nerds out there. <laughs> um, that's a little organ in the middle of your body. He does surgery on it. I diagnose it. Um, so Selwyn, so different people in other aspects of medicine than radiology that I worked with as colleagues clinically and did research with. Um, and then co-mentors, Sherry Cannon was a resident of mine and, um, you know, I got to mentor her when she was coming up through radiology and then I just watched her go. I mean, that has been the most exciting thing because, you know, as a mentor, the greatest thrill that what really makes you you know, sing in your heart is when you see somebody that you have mentored achieve great success yes. and then pass it on. So it's all about paying it forward. It's about weaving that quilt for me. Um, and so from Sandra Friedman, who mentored me from afar, to other people across the country who I admired and tried to emulate, uh, to now I've learned the difference between mentors and sponsors and coaches. Right. For all those who have helped me, you know, I try to do the same for others. So whether it's um, a medical student at University of Alabama at Birmingham or a radiologist in San Francisco or in Toronto, Canada. You know, I try to fit lessons I learned at Momentum, what they need. I try to fit what pearls of wisdom I can have in sharing my experience um, as well as sponsoring and coaching. But mentoring, I think, is yeah. really something that um, brings joy to my heart to see people just taken around with it, like shared. Now, you were in the Momentum Class 14 mm-hmm. that graduated in 2017. Was Dr. Cannon the person that nominated you for Momentum? I think so. She um, Did she do anything to prepare you for the experience? Um, no. One sentence. 
I guess this was the best preparation possible, actually. She said to me, you know, we've nominated you for Momentum. You've never seen anything like it. You're going to love it. And that's all she said. And it was absolutely the truth. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was to foster development, leadership development, women to positively affect the economy of the state of Alabama. Yeah. I paraphrase, probably didn't get it quite right. But so I knew it would be people that I would be working with and learning from that were outside the field of medicine, but nothing could have prepared me. I mean, I, I, I might have asked, well, should I read something? What should I do? And she said nothing. Just show up and you're going to love it. And I have. The women that I met that were um, in different fields completely, but having some of the same issues, you know, I learned so much from you, from Barbara, from our co-mentoring group. Um, it was just a fantastic experience. I don't know how y'all plan it, but it just worked out great. I'm class of 14. Every class works out exactly as it should. One of my favorite phrases is from the poem, poem Desiderata, and it says one of the, the stanzas, and it says, whether or not it is clear to you, the universe is unfolding exactly as it should. Yeah, and that's what happens in Momentum. Yes, every year. Well, thank you so much, Desiree, again, for making the time. This has been really fun. I could talk all day to you, but um, our time is kind of limited today, and I know that you have a conference in Chicago to get (laughs) Get back to. to work, that's right. Well, thanks so much, April. It's been uh, fantastic taking me through all those paths and remembering things, and uh, thanks for all that you do for Momentum. It's just um, an amazing organization that I'm Thank proud you. to be part of. Me too. Good. The Momentum Matters podcast would not be possible without our sponsors. Please visit our website at MomentumLeaders.org backslash sponsors to learn more. Signing off, this is Karen Taradis from Social Youth.